Welcome to Dominating Your Investments, a podcast where you'll learn about stocks, personal finance, and creating generational wealth. I'm your host, Dom Rinaldi. In this episode of Dominating Your Investments, I had the privilege to sit down and talk with Tom Nash, a well-known professional YouTuber who talks about Palantir and other stocks like Tesla. Now, his story is very unique in that he worked for an investment firm for 10 plus years and is now a professional YouTube investor who's really helping retail investors like you and me do better on investing with the right companies, the right mindset, and really learning how to analyze companies. And for that, I'm appreciative. So in this episode, we're going to talk about his story, his background, how he got to be where he's at, but also we're going to get to deep dive into Palantir, looking forward to their earnings on November 9th, looking at their SPAC integrations such as Black Sky and Weijo and Embark, but also getting to talk about their second cohort of companies that are using Foundry for Builders. And are they going to expand to a third cohort? We discuss. We also talk about the partnerships they have with Data Robot, AWS, and IBM. We'll get to learn about his bear thesis on Palantir, if there is one, and also look at how many total stocks does he hold and how does he invest in his personal portfolio and looking at the different industries that Palantir is now breaking into. So this is going to be a fun session of learning about how to invest for the long term. So sit back, relax, grab a pen and paper, take some notes and enjoy this interview with Tom Nash. And remember, it's never too late to dominate your investments. Well, thank you for joining me today, Tom. Uh, dominating investment followers, we have a special guest, Tom Nash here. Uh, you know him from YouTube, over 250,000 subscribers, uh, very a wealth of knowledge from Palantir to Tesla. Uh, and so what I want to do today is just to get to know Tom better on a personal level and understand his experience in investing and really his take on Palantir. Uh, anyone who follows Dominating Your Investments know I love Palantir. It's what I want to be my number one stock position. Uh, so we'll just kick it off. Uh, so Tom, how long have you been following Palantir and what inspired you to start talking about it on your YouTube channel? So I got onto Palantir completely by accident. I have not heard about it. I knew nothing about it. I didn't even hear the name. And uh, I was having a chat with some uh, with a with a guy who worked for uh, for ClearBank. I don't know if you're familiar with ClearBank, but uh, they do a lot of uh, early startups and uh, they have a lot of access to this interesting place. And he told me, well, there's this company we're just uh, investing in right now, and they're trading at the laughable multiples. They're like uh, one third of the of the of the value of. Uh, of Snowflake, and I think they have a way better product. Blah 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 blah. And he's like, they're called Palantir. It's like Palan what? I said Palantir. I said, okay, okay. Let me. What the what the hell is this? So I started digging into the company, and the more I dug, the more I found stuff I loved about it. Usually, when you go deep into a company, you find uh, it's like with the human being when you start to nitpick at his personality or her personality, you find more things you don't like, and then you say, well, okay, I can live with that. I can. Live. So the more I learned about it. I realized uh, I absolutely love the management. I love the culture. I love the product. I love the industry. And I absolutely love their impossible to copy business model where they spent uh, 16 years or 17 years uh, getting paid by the government to build this product that nobody can copy. 
which is something uh, I thought was really brilliant. Only a madman like Peter Thiel can come up with a 17-year game plan. He reminds me, I don't know if you saw the latest Dune movie. Uh, I've not yet, but I've heard it's good. It's beyond good. So I'm a huge Herbert fan. I read all the books. So I also don't think that the Lynch movie from the 80s sucked. Uh, so I, you have no idea what I'm talking about. There was a previous attempt to adapt uh, Dune. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And in Dune, there is this uh, characters that uh, they call the Bene Gesserit. And they have, they're playing this political game while they're trying to influence politics, but they play on, a cen- on centuries. They basically have this plan and it's spanning a couple of hundreds of centuries until they can get what they want. And I thought that Peter Thiel was pretty much the closest thing to it as far as a human being. If you read zero to one, it's yes, his I mindset. have read zero to one. Yeah, so I have friends who read it multiple times. Justin O from my my buddy, from from our own podcast, he read it. I think this is third time, and you can you can the once you read the book, it's really impossible not to fall in love with Palantir because he outlines everything there, and you can see that he executed to the T. Um, so yeah, that's how I stumbled upon it, and I've been excited about it ever since. Awesome, awesome. So taking it to a different direction, kind of starting with your YouTube career, I know that you were a senior annual analyst for over 10 years um, and then just stopped and to give back to the community and become a professional YouTuber. So what was that defining moment that made you realize you didn't want to work in, in corporate investments anymore? So I don't think it was an altruistic move. I don't think I did it to help other people, to be honest with you. Uh, I quit because I was uh, freaking burnt out. Couldn't sure. take it anymore. I had enough of uh, office politics and kissing ass and, and and not getting credit for my work and everything that comes along with working a corporate job. I mean, uh, uh, so I also had a friend that went through a really, like he made a really horrible mistake and he was uh, really in bad shape because uh, he almost got fired. And uh, eventually, so I saw all of this happen and it's like, I'd rather flip burgers than do this shit. Basically, this was my <laughs> mindset. And when I quit, I didn't have a YouTube channel like to lean on. I had a small YouTube channel, which was like a hobby channel. I don't think it was monetized. Maybe it was monetized, but it was making beer money at this point. And I, I just thought I'm quitting and I don't care. I'll I'll figure it out. I just don't want to do this anymore. And uh, I, I, I said it on my YouTube channel. I said, hey, I'm going to do this YouTube thing for a while. And people are like you going full time with like six thousand subscribers, you crazy? So yeah, I'm gonna do it because uh, I, I I really didn't have a plan and I I didn't think it's gonna work out to be honest. But I just said, well, let me do a f- for a few months what I ab- absolutely love, and uh, I'll figure out what I really want to do later. And that later never came because it blew up. Uh, I had a few lucky uh, uh, videos that blew up, which uh, exposed me to a larger audience. And then what happened is what I think uh, it's really sad sometimes, you know, when you go uh, in this, like uh, if you go in in London, for example, you take a walk, you see all this like mega talented musicians playing on the street like you and for you can you can look at these guys and you can say, well, like 50 percent of them can be in the recording studio right now and make music that I'd buy and pay for. And yet they're playing on the street. The only difference between them and the guy who got signed is basically exposure. Some sure. some are more talented, but a lot of the time it's just lack of opportunity. And I felt really lucky because I felt like I got that exposure and people said, well, uh, yeah, we like what you have to say and we'll stick with you. And uh, I've, made, I've made some 
uh, adjustment since then. Uh, I I I I try to keep it as honest as possible. Uh, as far as uh, not selling people anything, I don't do any uh, promotional stuff. I don't get paid for anything. I just wanted to be like a source of information and uh, teach people the stuff I kind of learned along the way. And uh, because I felt like on YouTube, others people are trying to sell you something. So when they explain something to you, usually there's a, well, and if you want to learn more, buy our advanced program. Blah, blah, blah. And that's a hidden it, agenda. Yeah. And it cringes me out. It's like, I don't want to be that guy. And on the other hand, there's people who do it for free, but then they're so smart. They don't understand that they have to simplify it to make it easy to understand for people who are like regular people like me. And I was like, nobody explains this stuff in a simple, easy to understand manner. And I thought to myself, well, I think I can do it. And I think people click the most with what I do is because I take stuff that seem really complicated because these rich fuckers, they think that, it, that they're going to be worth more if they present it as this brain surgery, uh, space travel, but it's not. And I simplify things. So listen, it's not that complicated looking at multiples, running a DCF, it's it's very simple stuff if if you just uh, take a few minutes to learn the basics and uh, I think people click with that and uh, I I I guess I'm one of the lucky ones who got a deal you know in that analogy to the musicians and uh, it, there's not a day goes by where I don't say well thank you God for this because it's not like I feel like oh I arrived and I I piss gold and I you know my shit don't stink I just basically I'm aware of how lucky I am to do this. And still to this day, I'm sure you probably do your your due diligence and research and constantly try to to stay up and learn more uh, on not only your positions, but what's going on in the market, right? Yeah, and it's getting uh, harder because the way this market moves, it moves way faster than it moved even three or four years ago. Everything just shifts uh, on a daily basis. It's, re it's, it's really insane uh, the way the market works right now. Uh, I try because so for me, uh, it's not as complicated for compared to like guys who do day trading or swing trading, because my work rounds entirely on long term investing. So uh, little news like we have today, for example, with the the Hertz deal for Tesla, for Tesla it's cool. And it's a nice piece of information. It excites me, but I'm not going to buy or sell Tesla. Like I could have bought a shit ton of Tesla in the morning uh, when it came out, but I just, I don't do that because I don't feel it's my game. It's like uh, if I was a center and I was like seven foot five and I was huge and I had like a shack and I would be trying to shoot threes. I might hit a few threes, but like my game is inside. So my game is long-term. So in that aspect, since I'm a macroeconomics guy, I love macroeconomics. I love long-term investing. So my research is kind of more kind of relaxed. I get to sit down and really take my time with shit. I don't have to jump every day on the and see where the trend line is going. None of this. I don't have any options. So I'm a complete old man in a young man's body, bro. Hey, I'm right there with you. Uh, anyone who's listened to the podcast or our YouTube channel and pounding the table know that uh, I'm in it for the long haul. Uh, the, the nature of the market is always it goes up and to the right over time, right? You have to have the patience and the diligence to do your homework, understand your conviction. You can't buy conviction in stocks or borrow it from someone else, but also to be able to hold through those dips. And then ultimately, the power of compounding will, will take care of itself. And by the way, if you, if you don't believe the, 
the fear will always beat you. So the only way to create confidence is by investing in, in stocks that you have personally high conviction in. If you go on hype, you always lose to the fear and uncertainty. And uh, most often than most often you'll, you'll, you'll not make the right move. Uh, and I always keep saying it. The market is like Steph Curry's three point percentage. You might have a bad game. You might have a bad stretch, but end of the season, it's going to be 42%, no matter what. <laughs> the good companies will always outperform the market, even if long term, if it's short term, they're not doing so well. Winners just keep winning. That's right. So yep. now diving into uh, Palantir a little further, uh, I know our, our listeners want to hear your take on some things specifically before we come up to earnings. So Palantir just had their hackathon 2021 event. Uh, previously, uh, it's their internal event where they get together for a week and are able to work on projects and initiatives that they want to do. It's actually how Apollo was created five years ago out of their own internal event. Um, and they just completed a hackathon event with Weijo uh, that they put on Twitter. And so with that being said, you know, do you anticipate any new product announcements coming up during earnings or around this time before the, the year closes? There's no way in hell any products are going to come up from this hackathon in the in the in the next month. However, do I think that there were seeds planted for big things? Hell yeah, for sure. Like a company like Weijo uh, and a company like Palantir, imagine the possibilities. It's a completely stupid industry. The only company that has any sort of brain in this industry right now is Tesla, and they're killing it with data. So this is going to be the second company to datafy uh, the roads that we all drive on right now, combined with Palantir. I'm sure they have at least 50, 60 different leads they're going to be exploring after this. But as you know, uh, because you know this business really well, the life cycle of these things, of the development, is not as, I mean, if you had like a hackathon uh, today, you probably, if, if a product comes out of it, probably we're talking about good three years uh, at minimum. Uh, for them to announce a product that they considering starting working on, it's not very Palantir-like. Other companies might do it, but not a company like Palantir. When they come out with something, this shit is ready and it's fucking prepped. It's not in the beta. So, so with that being said, do you think because they leaked out on that Deutsche conference where he said, we have three new products that you don't know yeah. about, are one of those three possibly could be announced or, or, or teased out? Maybe, maybe, maybe. He's oh, he's been teasing about stuff that we hadn't heard about that they haven't played already for a long time. Maybe uh, I don't know. I I don't have any inside information. People think I have it, but I don't. <laughs> uh, I wish I had. Uh, if anything, you should talk to Jackson. He has a direct line to them. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, I don't have that information. So with that being said, do you still... a shout out to Palantir Vision by the way? If yes. you're not subscribed, yes, go subscribe to Palantir there. Vision. Friday and he's awesome. Um, so do you still add your position with Palantir even when it's trading sideways for the past, I don't know, about year now since it's been public? Um, after that big jump to 45, we've been stuck in that, you know, 20 to 25 range, uh, a little higher than that. Do you still add and keep building or you've already added so much now you're, you're kind of waiting for some catalyst? No, no, no. I, I'm, I, I just bought, I'm looking on my app right now. So I bought 
$80,000 of Palantir to add to my position. When did I buy it? I bought it on September 20th, $80,000. And then I added another $20,000 a couple of days ago. So I just added in the past month $100,000. And are you here. just DCAing that off a of set dates? Like, hey, I'm not. No, I don't have. Okay, I'll explain. So for me, uh, DCA for Palantir is meaningless. So I buy it the moment I have a, a disposable in income and cash to buy more. Because for me, entry price is irrelevant. I don't care if it's 25, 26, or 35. Sure. At this point, it's completely irrelevant for me. If I plan to hold the stock for 10 years, it's the entry price would be like saying, did you get Tesla 22 or 25? Who gives a shit? <laughs> it's the same. For me, it's the same mentality. So I'm just adding as much as I can. I'm not really even like I have a lot of gains, unrealized gains, but I mean, I'm not even taking this, uh, even though it, if I was a short term player or medium term, I probably would consider selling a bit right now, waiting for tapering and then getting in some more. But I just uh, I, I just don't want to deal with this kind of mental energy of trying to time the market. I just no, buy as much. I agree. I, I agree. And that's what I've been doing. I, I've literally, yeah. as soon as my 401k comes in on the, the check, uh, building it up, you know, I've only known about Palantir really for about three months. And my goal is to get it to my number one position. It's number seven already. Um, and, and I've full conviction in the thesis, the leadership team, uh, and everything that they potentially could achieve. Now, do you anticipate the SPAC integrations or even combined partnerships maybe in the future, like Black Sky with Weijo or Embark uh, with the trucking company that's doing found, foundry for builders? I, I see that like they're going into multiple industries with their foundry for builders, as well as their partnerships in these SPACs. And what's really exciting is they're all emerging technologies. And some yeah. of them even seem like they could communicate to each other. They could actually work with Apollo and actually provide new products. So I just would love your thoughts on that. Yeah, and some of the stuff they invested in are freaking futuristic as hell. Uh, I forget the company that does the exoskeleton. It's like uh, next. Sarcos, Sarcos Robotics. Yeah. yeah, yeah, it's insane stuff, like uh, unthinkable stuff. Uh, I think that what they're trying to do here, and this is me guessing, I don't know, I haven't spoken neither to... Alex, nor to Peter, don't know any of them. I've never spoken to them. What I think they're doing is basically compounding. They're, they're betting on themselves. So there's, they're basically launching these. Uh, mm, so Foundry to date was like, a, you needed to be like an Airbus or, or that magnitude to use Foundry. And the Airbus really did well with it, exceptionally well. So Airbus, thank the lucky stars for, for uh, ever trying this to build Skywise because Skywise has been very good to Airbus and their clients and their client suppliers. And even uh, Boeing actually enjoyed uh, the qualities of, of well, Skywise, yeah, but it's Foundry. Uh, so uh, right now they're trying to do the next logical move, which is to expand the total addressable market by going after smaller companies, which is something they haven't done before. And they literally are saying, well, we believe our shit is so good that we're going to invest in our in the clients that are going to use our shit because we believe that our shit is going to make them a, a leader in their category. So that shows me a lot of faith in what you're selling. And it's almost like, I don't know, you work in this industry. Whenever I meet a client that uses Palantir, usually they have some shares. Like it's very hard for me to find a client that doesn't own Palantir shares because it's that exciting. 
Uh, do I expect more of this? Of course. So the game plan for me would be if I was Peter Thiel, based on what I know from his book and how they, uh, how, what's the strategies, what's the vision is. So it's uh, business to government, then business to massive business, business to large multinational business, business to medium business, business to small business, and then eventually B2C which is the holy grail of this industry. If you can get a good B2C product, then you have a shot at being one of the biggest companies in the world. I don't, so for me, that's a natural progression of Palantir is expanding these collabs, expanding these packs. And I think as long as they believe in the product, which I think they will for, for a long time, they'll, they'll keep putting money into these companies because they know that they're just giving these companies tools to win. So why not? Do you think because they have a wide variety of industries they're playing in, right? And a lot of it's emerging tech that they could even potentially um, define what a foundry product would look like for EVs in general or satellite companies. Like you look at what they did with Skywise, right? Like they're now the industry, that is the industry product for airlines. It's a standard. It's the industry standard, exactly. 130 airlines use it. So do you see them... Getting a not only the 130 airlines, don't forget the amount of suppliers and subcontractors who use it through the airline. Okay, I I spoke to suppliers who supply nuts and bolts to an airline that use Foundry as an extension of the airline that uses Foundry because Foundry is built that way, so it's supposed to accept your suppliers and service providers also into the system, and it makes their shit better indirectly. So the ontology there with what they have with Foundry is now expanding. Like we know it's a core, it's like a living, uh, yep. a living nervous system, right? Yep. Uh, and so it's making everyone better in this, this repercussion of effects, right? This network effect. Um, do you see them having first, you know, we're, we're just in the beginning innings of genomics and uh, EVs and, and, and all these emerging texts. Do you see them maybe putting their stamp on it and we'll see more things like a skyline. Cause that's what I'm anticipating. I'm anticipating that they know their stuff so good. Why not bet on the disruptors and the innovators that could be a challenge to big tech. The thing about uh, Palantir and specifically about Foundry that uh, unlike what people want you to, to think it's completely industry agnostic. You can put this product in any industry, do the necessary adjustments, obviously. It's it, it's not plug and play, but you do necessary adjustments and within three weeks, this can work in any industry, in any category. And it, and it is, look at the amount, on the amount of types of industries that they service right now. So it's industry agnostic. Um, the only difference between Foundry as Foundry and Skywise is the name and just minor adjustments that work better with the way airlines, uh, you know, report data and collect data and blah, 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 blah. Because uh, imagine a company that services energy companies, healthcare providers, governments, and a company that collects millions of data points per flight, per plane, on thousands of planes up in the air, in the ground, including service providers, including silos. Uh, so it's, it's, it's just... This uh, the upside and the potential total addressable market for this for for their stuff is uh, almost unlimited. Uh, do I expect them to specifically target disruptive markets with this? Uh, I think that they're pretty much at this point. It's uh, 
it's 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 guaranteed to happen because the most volatile markets are going to be the markets in which the biggest disruption happens and uh, i think um they have such a strong brand at this point um they're going to be getting a lot of business even with i know they're building up a sales force uh, but i don't think they really need need one at this point it's an industry standard and getting clients is is not going to be complicated for palantir do i think they're actively going to be giving better deals to to more lucrative industries for sure they're smart sure. uh, it's like giving away uh, giving a bank account to kids uh, or or teenagers without any fees it's a smart play so it's sim- i'm assuming you know they're not idiots uh, and that's the thing that always amuses me when people talk about it well it's a consulting business motherfucker you don't know what what the product is then you haven't seen right. it to, if you've seen it you could you could never have said and uh, you work in this industry in software so to call it a a, a consulting is a, it's just fine it's just amusing to me fine whatever don't buy it one of the things that really excites me is that there's so confident in their business model and it, and it does i mean when you read zero to one you just see peter's fingerprints all over the business model with uh palantir and the um flywheel effect that it is and the fact of their uh acquire expand and then scale in their business model they're willing to lose margins and costs and revenues in those first two pillars because they ultimately know to be a successful SaaS-based business or software company, you have to retain the customer, but also you have to be able to then expand into other use cases for longevity. And what we see in the market is net revenue expansion rate tells all, right? If you were not to add any new customers, how much are you actually growing? Yep. So what's exciting is they're not only doing this from a revenue perspective, but you look at their operation margins, and now with Apollo, they, they've they've even said they don't have to hire as many employees or deployed engineers with because of Apollo. So it's almost like they're increasing efficiencies and top line growth. Would you would you agree with that? Yeah, and it's really deceptive because if you look at their EBITDA, it's, uh, it, oh you look oh they're not they're not profitable. That's the conversation we had offline earlier. It's you buy growth at this stage. If you don't buy growth. You, you don't trade in profits for growth. You're an idiot. Uh, they went all out in this. They're like, uh, uh, we spoke about CrowdStrike. We spoke about them. We spoke about multiple companies. I mean, Amazon did it. Facebook did it. If you want to be a significant player, you have to accept the fact that it won't be profitable for a long ass time. And you're trying to grab as much market share as you can. I think that for me, yes, like you said, operational uh, efficiency is really important. But look at the retention of their clients and look at how much they're selling more to existing clients. And the, yep. that's the biggest indicator to me. People don't leave Palantir. I'm sure at some point we might hear like uh, Amazon might drop them or IBM might drop them. And if they do, that's, I think it's going to be a mistake. But like big companies tend to think, well, we can do it ourselves better at some point. We've seen this happen before. They sure. have this mindset, oh, we can. We have the resources, we can build it ourselves, blah, blah, blah. But I mean... On on uh, on on aggregate, uh, most clients don't leave. It's like uh, uh, there's the stickiness of their product is what impresses me the most, even more than the operational efficiency and the way they're scaling up better and better. Uh, their scaling up has been look the foundry documents that I showed on my channel, where they're talking about deployment 
uh, one to three weeks and then within like six weeks you're basically on on auto you just handle the if you have issues with the help desk whatever like six weeks it's it's you talk about efficiency in the software product i mean it's a really fast time to install and basically and 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 to go through everything and, and leave a client with a working product uh it, it's kind of it, it, it's fucking fast but for me more impressively is that that people when they experience the product the clients don't leave and the employees actually buy palantir shares which was the experience that i got for my conversations well and what's so unique and interesting is how quickly they're able to quantify that return on investment like i've seen many software products out there in the industry and instead of talking about features benefits and advantages they're talking about solving the most complex problems in our industry uh and in the world and being able to put a dollar amount to that like when you look at how they save the airlines millions of dollars from just discovering overweighting in fuel uh, or looking at energy companies, you know, they've seen so many different use cases. To me, it seems like that's how, you know, when have we ever seen a company provide starting out going public and their average contract size is $5.7 million. Like that's not, they're not they're, you know, they're going after the hardest customer base. So that makes yeah. me believe that when they're, when they're ready to go scale that down to mid market, they will. But it's yeah, just... because those guys, they don't play around. If you don't deliver, you're out. Like with these types of companies, you know it, you've, you work with them every day. It's a very result-driven business. If you can't deliver the result, we don't give a shit. If you, What's the excuse is COVID? Don't go, we don't care. It's basically you're out and there's plenty of other people to replace you. It's very result-driven. Uh, I think they're going for the hardest demanding customers. They, they're retaining them. They're selling more product to existing customers. Uh, I, I couldn't agree more. I think the only thing that's holding them back is the fact that they're not, they're really not excited about uh, performance of stock price. They're excited about getting to the point where this becomes like, uh, like we mentioned, the operating system of every major company in the world. And to do this, you got to move slow. You can't put the wheels ahead of the, of, of the car. You, you got to move slow uh, because it's, like we all want them to have a b2c product tomorrow obviously it would be right. great right but if they if they take their time and it takes five to seven years or maybe five to eight or nine years i think that's the smart play that's the way to do it i mean eventually uh, i think this is uh, if you're playing long term uh, you'll sacrifice current hype for future potential which and, is exactly and it feels like time. That's exactly what Alex has said in every interview. He's been he's been consistent across the board as far as his viewpoint on shareholders, returns, uh, stock-based compensation, that this is not a stock to invest in for a year. And I've heard you say this on your channel, right? Like this is not a yeah. get rich quick scheme. Like this is a generational company that's trying to change multiple industries, but has a long-term vision. Um, what I think I get so much excited about is that it's founder led and that it's vision led and that it seems like it will always be yeah that's the thing about no other company i've not i worked you work in software i work in corporate i've never seen class f shares like this in any i've probably it exists but on large like on major multinational public companies i have never heard of these class f shares that they have like it's the first time i've seen it and i find it funny that people criticize it oh motherfucker are you kidding me I that's the biggest sell 
Yeah, that's the biggest selling point. Nobody can ever make decisions on the top of the head of Peter and, and Alex. I mean, forever, ever, ever. Whatever happens, they cannot be deleted out of them. They're fucking for life. So uh, that was, I think, a brilliant move. So that, so uh, even imagine, like, what happens usually in big companies? You go public, you lose control. You get investors, you lose control. You get uh, strategic partners who also get some shares, you lose control. Eventually, you don't get to make the decisions. And people who are idiots are basically forcing you into bad decisions. So in this case, exactly the right. people who know the best about the business, they're always going to be in control. And if you don't like it, don't invest. If you don't like Alex getting a lot of shares, a lot of options, don't invest. If you don't like uh, the fact that they're not profitable, don't invest. If you think they're a consulting company, don't invest. We don't fucking need you. No, that's Simple. so true. That 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 flywheel of effects of you go public, then you're answering to shareholders. Depending on the shares and and what institutions are buying, more and more decisions get lost, and it becomes harder to be founder focused and have that vision to continue to keep it uh, consistent, and also the culture within the employees. And the, the fact that they were able to keep employees for 17 years, majority of them, before going public. Well, that's what happens when you give a, a, a stock-based comp, a lot of it. Yeah. If you had a stock-based comp of that magnitude, I mean... It you're not really, leaving. You're not leaving. I mean, why would you? You're a, share, you're a massive shareholder at this point. Why would you leave? Tesla, by the way, is doing the same thing. Not to that extent, but I've spoke to multiple... Uh, former Tesla employees who have millions of dollars in Tesla just from stock plans. And they they've they did it first, and I think Palantir is doing the same thing. I mean, and people criticize it. Oh, look at how much share dilution. Motherfucker, that's not share dilution. That's called retaining employees, retaining management. It's, it's like they don't understand that this is not a zero-sum game. So when you dilute, you either get cash or you retain employees. So they say, oh, look at the dilution. Don't you understand that uh, your 10% uh, now going down to 8% is worth the same by definition, maybe even more if you retain good talent? Right, exactly. Um, and you so see these idiots, the Three Stooges, I forgot their channel name, talk about, oh, look, the 17 pillars of investment and the Palantir, look at the fucking clowns pretending to be value investors, misinforming people about what dilution really means. It's fucking annoying, idiots. No, I would agree. And just... I want my top talent and I want my company culture to stay intact because if it doesn't, then that's where execution falls off, right? You want your employees to be excited and want to be there. And I still see that vibe in every video and every uh, piece that I've seen along with Glassdoor ratings. So, you know, you got to do your homework, right? We're not saying take our word for it. Go do your own due diligence. Go, go look at, at what they've accomplished but and that's the toughest resource to compete on today. Dom, look, you notice how Elon has been doing. What do you think AI Day is for? Why do you think Alex Carr puts out his interviews on YouTube? Like when he it's talks to about give the those insights. It's it's they're doing this because they're competing. They're competing for the most important resource right now in the market, which is talented employees. Yep. The top the top 20% of companies are competing for the top 1% of employees. There's far less excellent outliers in the market as far as employees than companies who are willing to pay top dollars especially look at that data scientists if you're a good data scientist i mean you're banking like you're a millionaire 
So they're competing for employees and the competition is fierce. I'm not talking about 99% of people who are competing for a job. The top 1% of employees, they're, they're, they're interviewing working. the companies. They're <laughs> literally, literally, this is what's happening. So they're competing for the, for the, for the top 1%. And if you want to have the top 1%, you have to pay. And I'd rather them pay with stock because A, it's not a cash flow item. And B, it retains the employee for longer than somebody offers them 20, yes. 30% more. Yes. So it, I never it, understood it why like people get antsy about it, you know? No, I agree. It seems very common sense to me. Um, now, looking at, though, they have expanded. And we saw in the 2012 uh, interview with Alex that he would never have salespeople. They're engineering-based. Uh, obviously, going public changes some things. And uh, it also, you need scale. They have partnerships with Data Robot for retail. Uh, I love that company. Yeah. Uh, the, love the AWS that company partnership as well. And they've won awards with AWS as being one of their best partners. Uh, and then IBM. So with those three partnerships, do you anticipate or, you know, hopes, I guess, that in 12 months from now, we actually see some more insights as to results that are happening from them selling that product or being an advocate? I don't know how important the IBM partnership is. I don't know enough about it. Uh whatever i don't know because for me like the big player in the market as far as you know erp systems and the aws is killing it on the erp side there's the market so the aws project for me is i don't know what they do with ibm i don't know how much clientele ibm has sure. they probably have a nice business but it's nowhere close to the, the stuff that they're doing with amazon so don't know this i don't know that's fair yeah i don't know enough about i don't for me it's not a, it's not one of the important stuff about the company the aws project is is really key to me uh, i think that uh, basically uh, with what they're doing in this uh, <laughs> okay so here's a simple question for you would you agree with me that uh, amazon is a company of literally uh, unlimited resources to develop new product and new services they're the closest thing that comes to it okay so if that's the case would it not make sense for them to build something that they don't have to share the profits with another company? Yeah. Okay. So if you have the biggest, richest motherfuckers in the neighborhood, the biggest, baddest guy, and it's teaming up with you because you think he's teaming up because he's nice, because he's generous, or because he says, I can't fucking do it on my own because they have something unique that I must have, which I cannot replicate. So some people say, well, they're going to kick them out because, well, I want to see you try replicate this. I yeah. want to see you try why don't you try and let's see what happens? Because uh, for me, those partnerships is a validation of the quality and the moat of whatever it is Palantir is selling. Uh, I would agree. And the people in the interview, uh, you know, in the media said about the data robot partnership. Well, why are you partnering with them? Couldn't you just do it yourself? And it wasn't. And Sankar quickly corrected everybody and said, we're synergizing here to deliver a outcome that's best for both companies as well as the customer. Um, and wait, 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 they're two completely different companies. They do completely different things. People don't understand the data robot partnership. Data robot and Palantir are not competitors. They're com in a completely Correct. different industry. Data robot, basically, they're data scientists or at least automated data scientist interfaces for, for large businesses where they mine data for you. They'll get you out of your organization the best data. Palantir will take this data and make it mean something. It's a completely exactly. different thing. I, I, people don't understand that enough and they get confused. 
Well, why are they teaming up? Because they're it's fucking apples and oranges. Yeah. And it, and it also it's accelerating both businesses because they're not competitors, right? They're not eating market yeah. share from each other. Now, changing gears um, to learn more about your approach. You said long-term investor, you know, not stressed out about the, the, the macro uh, or day-to-day industries of, of what's happening in the market, just like myself. Um, how many total stocks do you hold if you had to throw a number out there? Is it a big uh, portfolio? Is it small? No, no, I have uh, I have under uh, under fifteen stocks in my portfolio. Okay, so it's much more concentrated. No, no, I don't believe in the ultra diversification. Okay, I don't believe in that. I if I was running an ETF, that's a whole different thing. If I was running a fund, it's a whole different thing. As an individual investor, I I don't I, I don't have this need to over diversify my portfolio. I'll explain why. So diversification is a is a, it's either a risk management tool or it's it's a multiplier. So for uh, depends on what you're doing. If you're a venture capitalist, then the diversification doesn't it doesn't you don't manage risk with it. You're actually scratching lottery tickets, mm-hmm. and uh, you hope one will be the next fifty billion dollar company, and that way you win, even if the other forty nine are not. For ETFs and and funds like that, it's basically a risk management tool. You know you're not going to hit the bank with every single company, but most of them you're going to hit, and that's you're going to slightly beat the market and basically give decent returns. Uh, you know, nice to have, but not necessarily kind of thing. Uh, for me, as an individual investor, I'm trying to kind of get in between of that. So essentially, I don't want to have all my eggs in a single basket, but I don't want to over diversify myself to the point where I'm pretty much tracking the the SPY 500. Mm-hmm. I want to scratch the lottery tickets as well. So I'll have significant positions in Tesla, in Palantir, companies like that. But and have you know I have some ETF, uh, the S and P five hundred, and some other companies. But it's not about uh, managing managing a, a forty five fifty company portfolio is a fucking headache. I don't need to be honest. I can't do it, and it's just it's 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 not um, it's not in my in in, in me to do it. Uh, if I believe in the company, it's usually. From a business perspective, I think they're going to be a leader within the next five years. So I don't think there's too much of those, if you know what I mean. Sure. There's not a lot of companies that fit that profile. And I think in my portfolio, I have the ones that I, I believe in the most. So I think there's a couple things that you hit on that's so important for our listeners. One, you know yourself. You know what type of investor you are and what would stress you out. What's maybe more time than you'd rather give to uh, a style of investing. Uh, but also you have a threshold of there's a level of excellence that is required to be one of the stocks that you hold. Definitely. Um, because like, uh, I think Warren Buffett said it, he invests in companies, not in stocks. So he, it's all about what do you think about the company? Forget the stock price. Just, just think if, if it's a good business to buy, if you had to buy the whole business, would you buy it or not? No. And that's, that that really narrows it down when I'm going through my portfolio in my head and I'm like, you know, that really does narrow it down because there there's um, there's a few companies that uh, you could easily say that they're like, yeah, I, I would I'd buy that whole business. I, I'd feel confident to, to risk my life savings. But there's others that not. So then it kind of gives that. But the others can be lottery tickets, though. They can be lottery tickets and you never know which one's going to pop. It's OK to scratch lottery tickets. 
It's just what I don't like and I don't condone is like the the the, the ones who like YOLO into like uh, some crazy oh, yeah. play. That's that's just insanity to me. That's like Russian roulette style stuff. I don't I hate that thing. Sure, sure. Um, so coming to the close, I have just a couple uh, fast uh, questions here. Rapid fire. Uh, what was your best investment decision and what was your worst that you rem- that you can recall uh, or biggest investing mistake? I think the best investment decision I made, obviously investing in Palantir, my worst, uh, I sold some Tesla shares at uh, five minutes before the market closed, before the announcement of the split. Oh, <laughs> it was a planned sale. It was something I planned in advance, and I was basically trying to trim the position to get some other stock that I needed. And I didn't give it the second thought. I wasn't playing Tesla. I was just okay. But I have uh, I have some upside there, blah blah blah, and uh, I'm going to trim it. And basically, took a shower, came out of the shower, and they announced the split. I was like, mother. <laughs> <laughs> I lost a lot of money on that. Oh. Like if I waited for five more minutes and, and said, oh, I'll do it tomorrow morning, I would have saved myself a heap of money. But I guess that's part of life. And I made a video saying that if you think that the people who talk about this on TV, on social media, they don't make stupid decisions, they don't lose money. I mean, they're liars. Everybody makes bad decisions. Everybody lost money in the stock market. It's just part of life. Uh pretending like you're the next best thing since Warren Buffett, which some channels do. And I feel it's just fucking ridiculous, fucking fake as fuck. Yeah. And, and how I got started in investing me personally, my story was when I, I, uh, you know, leaving index funds to learn that you can beat the market it is feasible. It's not this thing that, that can't be done. It, it actually is very feasible with, with the right patience, the right ability to, uh, your chicken is ready yeah i know i know i, I, just, I know i know i just got a text there so we might leave that in just for, for bloopers there. put a fork in it <laughs> uh, but really to look at uh holding it long term and to pick these companies i saw motley fool actually say hey look at our track record i'll put out all my i'm losses. doing an interview with them tomorrow by the way oh man let's see i'm getting out yeah, see, my brother just had his baby, so I'm probably getting a whole bunch of uh, pictures there. <laughs> okay. <laughs> we'll have to, okay, go uh, ahead. Uh, I don't so, mind. Yeah, so with that, um, they put their track record to the test and say, hey, we've made bad mistakes. We, you know, What we do yeah. know is our winners win, and we're going to hold and we're going to prove out that you can be diversified. You don't have to have a very super concentrated portfolio, but you have to know what works for you and do your homework. And so I took to that. And uh, then of course, met the pounding the table team there and and have similar philosophies in a lot of areas and it's panned out well. And so what I want to tell listeners is that you're living proof for myself as well, is that you can beat the market, um, by doing your homework, by picking good quality companies, not stocks. Um, and I guess dovetailing into that, what do you set your criteria for that makes a company investable? Like if you, you said 15 stocks, roughly you have, what would it take for a company to be forced their way to be a 16th stock in your portfolio? 
first of all, I have to love the management. If the managers are not, if the if this management is not rock stars, I don't want it. I don't want like a, you know, like a quarterback. You don't want a game manager. You want like a Brady. You want yeah. a, a Peyton Manning. You want a superstar, like the guy they have at SoFi. You seen the SoFi management change they did? They got out. They got like a Brady Quinn out. They got the fucking Tom Brady in. <laughs> so a, a couple of years ago, I believe they got a guy. His credentials like so. Management is number one. A potential total addressable market has to be number two, a, and they have to be able to disrupt their way into becoming one of the top two players in their industry. If I don't believe they they can do it, and uh, because like for example, like I had the company, I'm not gonna say which. I don't want to bump people out. Sure. But there's a company that does three D printing, very popular. Everybody loves them. And the uh, the reason I decided not to invest because I just I I figured that the the total addressable market is is just not big enough for sure. for them to do that. It's the same thing I say about Palantir. If Palantir don't come out with a B two C product eventually, that vision of the trillion dollar company is never gonna happen. So for me, that's that's it has to be of that magnitude. It has to be something that potentially can become one of the biggest companies in the world. Otherwise, I'm not really interested. So uh, you can, otherwise, just put your money in the S&P 500, like you mentioned earlier. Yeah. S&P will give you 8% per year. 8% per year is better than you can get renting out apartments. It's a fucking great return and you can cruise. So if you're, you're either in the S&P 500 or you're really trying to hit it big, Anything in between is just you're not gonna beat the market uh, by playing like you're not gonna beat the S and P 500 by playing the same game the S P 500 is playing. You know what I mean? Uh, yeah, I, for, I forget what the statistic is. I think like uh, the 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 companies that were in the S and P 500 15 years ago was like 90 percent different than what it is now, right? Yeah. Like, yeah. like innovation always pushes things forward and change. And so, yep. and you can't imagine that either. That's, that's one of the funny things about the Palantir valuation is people don't think about them coming out with new products or, or imagine what possibly could happen opposed to just putting them in a box for 30% year over year growth. Here's your three products. And that's the company. But um, that's the thing. Like uh, we don't evangelize Palantir. I serve my audience who loves Palantir and I give them the, information i think they they they're looking for i don't try to convince people to invest i mean i don't give a shit don't invest i don't yeah. i don't care like we honestly don't anyone will tell you the same thing just don't invest what's the problem people start to debate me well, I don't, well don't invest motherfucker we don't, exactly that's, that's yeah, the end of the argument right short it short it go crazy bro. I don't <laughs> care. like no problem i don't mind uh so so final question here um what lessons have you learned from investing that you could share with your audience for someone who's starting out and just, it, it's scary at first, you know, I was scared at first to, to, to yeah. start that process, but to realize if, if you don't start today, you're, you're losing money by not getting involved and taking, taking ownership of your money. There's a story, uh, about uh, I think it's an old Chinese story. I think it's old. I don't know. It I I didn't make up this story. It's not mine, so I don't take any copyright on this. But the story is really good. It's about the I probably am screwing up the story a little bit. So the people who know it, forgive me, please. So the story is about an old uh, Chinese farmer, and uh, he's living a very modest life, and uh, he's with his wife and his son. And uh, he doesn't have anything beyond, you know, their little shack. 
their little piece of land and the horse and they work every day on the farm they make their food they sell a little bit in the market they make ends meet like you know 90 percent of people in 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 the world does uh, sadly very tough life and uh, one day the horse runs away and uh, all the villagers they come up to him and say well that's horrible those are horrible news bad news and then he says uh, well i don't know maybe and they were like oh like they look at him it's like what what do you mean maybe he's like so i don't know and they're like okay whatever like so they leave next day the horse comes back brings with him another pack of wild horses like five different five wild horses so now he has six horses and everybody's like this great news amazing news and he's like well i don't know let's see and then they're like again like this guy is insane what's going on with him what's wrong with him so they try to to tame these horses and uh, him and his son are working really hard trying to tame these horses and then uh, his son breaks off breaks his leg falls off one of the wild horses breaks his leg can't work so all of a sudden he can't work that's like 50 percent uh, shortage of manpower that's pretty much him and his kid again all the people come up bad news bad news and he's like well i don't know let's see then a couple of days later a huge war starts and the king comes to draft all the young boys to the military to fight in the war and everybody gets drafted apart from this little kid because he has a cast on his leg and he can't go to war so then again and then the villagers come up and then uh, blah 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 you, see, you can go all day so why am i telling this story is because from our own perspective at, at a certain day you might look at the stock market and we say well this is really bad if you're just patient with it and you give it some time the answer might be different if you just give it a couple of days so i would just tend to not get over uh, hyped or over sad about things that seem like they can never be good or bad uh, and, and that's the main kill. yeah i think the main the main thing is just kind of just flow with the with the way flow, flow with it go with the punches don't think that you can see the entire progression of a company's life cycle because you you think they had a bad day no i think that's very spot on and, and um it's one of the benefits of being a long-term investor you're not stressed out about you know uh tapering and this and that like i know tapering is going to happen we're probably going to go lower on growth am i going to start selling shares for my growth stocks and try to protect those gains and then try to get back in for me no I know for me, I'd rather just, I know I'm holding these, you know, at least the next 10, 15 years. I'm okay. I'm just going to add, I'm going to add with the cash that I have on exactly. those chips, but uh, to play it back and forth and when to get in with no one thought when it dipped down and COVID hit that March, 2020, it would spike all the way back up very quickly. Yeah. You know? Look at S&P 500. Whenever it had a dip, it had massive dips for a long time. It always bounces back up. Because uh, much like the U.S. economy, which you don't want to bet against, you don't want to bet against good companies. It's the same thing. Well said. We'll leave it there. Uh, Tom, thank you so much uh, for joining us on Dominating Your Investments. Uh, guys, you have to check out his YouTube channel. If you haven't, uh, go there. Give it a like. Uh, also, make sure to follow him on Twitter. Even though he says don't smash anything, I'm telling you, you will <laughs> smash it. You will like it. Um, thank you again for, for coming on the show. No, it's my pleasure, Dominic. And uh, uh, in case uh, you're watching this 
and you have not yet subscribed uh, to Dominic's podcast and channel, uh, I'm going to come to your house and I'm going to beat you up. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> thank you. But thank you should. You so much. <laughs> Good. I'll see you soon, buddy. All right. So once again, thanks for listening in to Dominating Your Investments. And remember, it's never too late to start. So I hope this helps you get some encouragement on how to look at a company from a qualitative and quantitative perspective. Um, and if you have any questions, feel free to hit me up on Twitter at uh, DominicRinaldi9 and give me a follow and look forward to uh, providing more content like this uh, on my podcast. Now for the disclaimer. Dominating Your Investments is a podcast that is part of the Pounding the Table Network and is for entertainment and educational purposes only. This should not be taken as financial advice and is just that of my opinion on investing. If you found that informational helpful and entertaining in today's interview, you can also give me a follow at DominicRinaldi9. Thank you again for listening and remember, it's never too late to start dominating your investments.